Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I'm your host, Antoine Balter, and in today's episode, I'm excited to welcome back Ravid Levy, founder and consultant at RLB Consulting, as my guest. You may have already heard Ravid on that same microphone in season one, where we covered the challenges of plug-and-play solutions by episode eight and the way to foster water innovation by episode two. In this week's episode, we will try to solve a puzzle. How to build a sustainable frame to overcome water scarcity. To illustrate this, we're going to seek some inspiration from a country leaving it firsthand, Israel. Indeed, Ravid will tell us how agricultural water uses, which are often a blind spot of the water industry, triggered innovation to overcome water scarcity, and how this same scarcity is an overall driver when it comes to innovation. He'll take us through the two pillars of the Israeli water miracle and demonstrate how their application shapes some of the most promising emerging water applications, such as distributed treatments. Throughout our conversation, Ravid will take us back to his evolution concept, which transforms Homo pollutius into Homo ecologicus, Homo reuses, and ultimately Homo circularis. But we'll also discuss hydroponics, futurology, passing the torch, and much more. You probably already heard that sharing is caring. We are all a link in this chain. Please share this episode with at least two of your friends. Grab their phones and subscribe them to the podcast. That's how we will put water topics forward. So really, do it and I'll meet you on the other side. You're listening to Don't Waste Water the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Revit. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hi. It's great to be back and uh, actually even uh, very flattering to be invited uh, for the third time for this uh, great series of, of podcasts. Thank you. Well, let's start maybe by catching up our auditors that, that missed your two first appearances. What would be your very short version of your elevator pitch to yourself? Basically, I uh, regard myself as someone who's linking between the technological side and the business side for uh, water and wastewater innovation. I've uh, spent the first 15 years of my career in, in, in different companies, Israeli companies that were uh, developing and, and producing and applying different water technologies around the world. Uh, I've spent a few years in Australia and many years in Israel doing international and technological work. And now for the last few years, I've been doing that as a as a consultant to different organizations in the water market to basically bridge the language gaps between uh, research, technology, and business to try to, uh, to move forward some of, of those uh, obstacles in the way of innovation. I remember you in, in, uh, in our discussion around innovation mentioning that there is almost this lost in translation element between business and technical activities. And there's one aspect of your path that we didn't cover so far, which is what you're doing with the Migal Galilee Institute. So what is it? What are you doing there? Yeah, so this is what uh, really uh, triggered the, uh, the addition of research to the third uh, language beyond engineering and business. Because behind everything or in the basis of, of many things in our business or in our area of work, there's the basic research that is done around the world and also here in Israel in the, in the academy. So uh, Miguel is actually an academic institute, which is uh, positioned in the very far north of Israel. And the works is a regional uh, research institute, but obviously works on many things that are, have global uh, or international uh, implications. Uh, but the specialty is mainly food tech, biotechnology, agriculture, and different clean tech aspects, including water and wastewater. So I've been uh, asked to help uh, Miguel in translating some of the water, wastewater, and environmental uh, researches into practical and market readiness. 
it's being called business development, but in fact, it's kind of a matchmaking and translating, if, if we use uh, your, uh, your term for that, which is correct. I work with the researchers themselves, with the scientists and with the IP people and with the market, with companies, uh, and also help uh, everybody to come together and take some of those uh, very interesting innovations towards more uh, product and more practical and eventually commercial application. I was reading a study on that. It's very interesting that you mentioned it, who was showing that out of the wide array of, um, of research available, and uh, most of the time this research brings something to the field of water and to the way we treat water, but from this wide array of possible technologies, there's really a low percentage that ever gets to application. And I'm not even talking here of commercialization, but really to application. So if I get you right, you're, you're here to avoid that. To avoid or may actually, yes, to narrow that gap and, and try to take more uh, good scientific ideas beyond the papers and, and the PhD thesis and everything into more practical aspects and eventually commercial aspects. Uh, now, most universities and research institutes today have a commercial arm or a commercialization company even that is in charge of doing exactly that, to bridge those gaps and locate good ideas in the research and take them to the market in different ways. However, I find that in many universities or institutes, the water, wastewater, and, and even some other environmental aspects are being kind of uh, left behind or, or fall between the cracks because the dedicated people in some of those commercial arms of the research institutes are not water and wastewater experts, and they don't know the water and wastewater market. Specifically, it's a niche. And so this is exactly where I try to help to come as someone who knows the market and knows the needs and knows sometimes the competing technologies or, or the different applications, and that specifically pick those uh, water innovation and try to advance them towards that specific market. And I'm doing this for Miguel and, and uh I'm also happy to do that for other institutes in other places. I think it's it's a niche that is being a little bit neglected. And that's why maybe partially the percentage of turning scientific invention into innovation, practical innovation, is a little bit low. I was reading the thesis of uh, Paul O'Callaghan, and uh, he has these two elements of the, the value-driven innovation and the need or crisis-driven innovation. And I would say, despite all the odds, we are in an industry where value-driven is a very difficult path. If you come with added value and there's no active thing to force it to be enforced, it's probably not happening or very slowly. Whereas if it's need-driven, and most of the time need-driven has to be understood as there was a big crisis like uh, Flint, Michigan, which you, uh, I think you brought up last time we discussed, or really something terrible happens, or simply there's a new regulation who enforces everybody to, to do something, then it's a greenfield for innovation. And the link to our discussion today is that I'd like to see how a country like Israel is dealing with this kind of different ways to do innovation in the sense that if there's one place in the world where it's probably difficult to have access to water, it's probably Israel. And I would see that, you know, from hundreds and thousands of kilometers away as probably a driver, yet it's something that I'd like to, to pressure test with you today. And just let's take that as a teaser for something we will be discussing later on. Let's put that idea in the fridge and let's start from the beginning, which is, you know, at the time we record uh, this episode, there's the, the Giro of Italia that just started and there's this, uh, this cycling team called Israel Startup Nation. I bet they're not going to win the Giro but still they, they bring this awareness of Israel being a startup nation. And the last time, actually the first time we discussed, we were discussing about Israel as a water startup nation. We were adding the water element. And yet, if I get you right, yeah, there is something happening in, in the water sphere in Israel, but not to the same level than it would be happening in other spheres. Is that true? And if it's true, why so? Well, I think it's it's true. Uh, I, I first of all uh, love the the branding of Israel as a startup nation. I think it has a lot of reality in that. And if you just look at the numbers and the, whichever way you want to take it, 
from patents uh, per capita to how many unicorns uh, have been, uh, you know, uh, made out of uh, Israeli startups in the last uh, couple of years. It's amazing. But when it comes to water, I think there needs to be a little bit of perspective that separates between Israel as a hub of water management and water innovation and the startup part of it, which is just relatively small, although important and growing part of that. There's a lot of uh, things in which Israel, I guess, can be an example for innovative and also successful water effluent, whatever management. Uh, However, not all of that really translates into what can be called as the water startup nation. There's uh, a lot to be proud of and, and still a lot to aim for in that regard. So what's a good indicator of what makes someone innovative in a field like water? First of all, the way that, I don't know if someone, but let's take a nation or a country. Let's take Israel, by example. Yes, of course. So first of all, the way it deals with uh, its own water scarcity and, and water challenges. And then the next phase, how well it manages to export that success or that um, uh, or the know-how and, and all the innovations, again, we'll, we'll be saying that word a lot, I guess, today, to other places that suffer from similar problems. One thing that we rarely talk about in this water market environment that I guess your podcast is trying to cover many aspects of, of the water market, but there's one very, very important, maybe the most important by the quantity of water that we hardly speak about, which is irrigation or agriculture. Agriculture is the biggest user of water by far globally. I think about 70% latest I, I read of the global water use is going for irrigation. Now, the, the quote or the definition I said before about innovation is actually taken from the head of innovation for Netafim, which is an Israeli company that in the 60s invented drip irrigation in the south of Israel, in the desert, in order to make water use by, by plants more efficient. And today it's the, it's the world leader in, in drip or, or precision irrigation and, and a billion dollar company. But that invention initiated, as you said, and as Paul uh, said in, in his thesis, out of need. I wouldn't say a crisis, but definitely a continuous need of not enough water to grow crops and, and food in the desert from that point. And, and today in Israel, a lot of the agriculture is being irrigated by drip irrigation. And that invention, which, like the definition before, solved the need, addressed the need in a new way, and then made a lot of money, way more than it cost to develop, and now all around the world solved similar or the same needs in other places. So that's an example of an Israeli need that led to a local invention that turned into global innovation that these days uh, solve a lot of water problems around the world. It's interesting what you say. First, it's funny when you look at the map of the words used in terms of irrigation, because you're fully right, it's the elephant in the room, yet the one that we don't address that much. And I think there are two countries in the world where irrigation is not the first use of water, and it's uh, UK and Ireland. The reason being that it rains so much there that they don't need that much irrigation. So, But it's right that in all the other places, uh, Switzerland, France included, where we have so much water, still irrigation is the first user. And the second thing makes me think, you know, of this um, constrained creativity. I think it was en- encapsulated in the Apollo 13 movie, but it's a true story. It's the story of how you get creative when you have just 24 hours to save people which are somewhere out there in a capsule in outer space. And you can just be creative with what you have. You cannot send them a spaceship with additional tools. So you have to do with what you have. And that is, to me, a bit your story of this drip irrigation in Israel. If you don't have more water, when how can you optimize your use of water up to the point where you are making something awesome with what you have? Exactly. 
Now, if, if you want another example, from, again, a different angle that connects to water, but we rarely think about or deal with enough, is the connection between energy and water. And then this goes to another Israeli innovation that started back in the 60s, but made mandatory in the 70s. And this is solar water heating. Now, you rarely think about how much energy is being put into heating our water at home and multiply that by the number of homes. So Israel in the 70s suffered from both water scarcity, as always, but also, again, almost until recently, also energy scarcity. And it was invented here and made mandatory in the 70s. And today, from what I, I know, about 85% of all homes in Israel have solar water heaters, and that saves about 6 to 8% of the national power use. Now, think about how many countries have so much sunshine and now invest in so in a lot of, of solar power, but still people turn on their water heaters every day at home using power just to take a shower. I'll give you the example from my home. In summer here, we practically never turn on the, the electric heater from around May all the way to September. And in winter, when there's a sunny day, you're mostly covered. And that's, again, well, at the end, it's, it's water. Uh, this is not maybe saving water, but saving a lot of energy. And that we keep on saying ne water energy nexus. I don't think we realize enough how closely those things are, are related. And, uh, and, and we can speak later more about this connection of water, food, and energy and, all, and how all that must be now combined in the new age of, of innovation. You cannot anymore just improve water and forget about the energy use or other things or improve agriculture without accounting for water use and energy use, etc. But if I recall the examples you, you, you shared, uh, so this drip irrigation, the, the solar heating, it sounds like common sense examples. And common sense has this beauty that it can be used everywhere. So that's the second element of, that you mentioned, that how you can do something locally and then use it somewhere else. But usually common sense is also quite difficult to enable. So is that something which is different in the way you look at those water challenges in Israel compared to maybe all the places in the world, what is the key? What is the almost a special source that enables that common sense to be taken on scene and to be simply enforced? I'll surprise you because it's not very, maybe common, but not very popular these days. The answer is central planning. Because yes, we are in a democratic world and, and, and the capitalistic world and, and, and the market should decide. But common sense sometimes when it comes to mutual resources And we see that now more and more with climate and with emissions and all that. Sometimes it should a little bit, at least to some extent, come from above. And, and the Israeli experience is actually exactly that. Before all those innovations and before all those uh, uh, big successes and everything that other countries may be looking at Israel for, there were two basic pillars that the entire Israeli water miracle, if you like, were built on. One was back from the 50s, and that's a national water law. That was one of the first laws that were put by the founders of the state, which defines all water resources around the country, both above and below ground, both dirty and clean. Everything from rainwater to seawater even, to be public domain, to belong to the public. There is no private water in Israel. There are some water that is being uh, allocated by the, by the government to private entities, of course, but the ownership of water resources by law belongs to the public. And therefore, and that's the second pillar, it allowed to establish very efficient central planning and central management systems for the, this national resource. It's really surprising because when you say central planning, you know, people think of uh, communist countries and Israel is seen as a very liberal country. It did start as a semi-socialistic country, but these days those uh, foundations that were set back in those days 
are really helpful to manage this very limited resource in a modern, democratic, and as you said, startup nation. Underneath, there is central planning of that specific, uh, very uh, limited resource. How does that look like? How does the central planning look like? Is it like a document that comes on the 2nd of January every year? Is it on, on five-year plans? There's a, a long-term planning and there's obviously an annual uh, plan that takes into account the rainfall and, and the available resources. So when there's, a, a, for example, a, a good winter, if you, as we call it here, all right, so relatively uh, a high uh, a rainfall, then the central planning can downsize a little bit the uh, pumping from underground to replenish groundwater levels or sometimes also to reduce a little bit purchase from the desalination plants to, to balance between the different sources and the cost, of course, that are, is involved in all that. You cannot look at the Israeli success in managing its, water, its limited water resources without understanding that underneath all that lies central planning of that resources and that not everyone can just do whatever they like with the water underneath their feet. You mentioned the, the Israeli success and the, the water management, and it, thanks a lot for placing the, the context to that. But, uh, you know, when you're looking at, at Google, I think the second most asked question on Google when it comes to, to water and wastewater is, how does Israel treat and reuse its industrial wastewater? First, I'm not sure why they target industrial and not just water in general. Maybe it's to overcome still something which people are really, really keen to understand that we reuse wastewater in the industry, but don't tell them that they might be drinking the pee of their neighbors. They are not ready for that. <laughs> Aside from the psychological aspect, is there any difference between the way industrial and municipal wastewater is dealt with in Israel? Or is it all that part of the central planning? There is a difference to a certain extent, but everything is still going under the overall water law and the part that the, the central planning plays in that. However, there's important definition or, or differentiation to be done here. Municipal wastewater in general is being treated and mostly reused in Israel. This may be a famous uh, a fact, but it's still worth repeating and emphasizing. About 85, maybe more these days already, percent of all domestic wastewater in Israel is being treated and reused for agriculture and only for agriculture, right? So all these discussions about uh, drinking your nearest pee or, 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 or toilet to tap and all that is practically irrelevant in Israel because none of the wastewater is being reused for drinking. There is a very strict and clear separation. You may say, and you probably will be correct, that we eventually eat much of that in our fruits and, and vegetables because, yes, a lot of the irrigation agriculture in Israel is based on reused effluents. But that element of reusing for agriculture, you know, in Europe, it's not that long that it's allowed. And uh, even now that it's allowed, and uh, really we are speaking of a couple of years, it's not like decades. Still, I, I was reading this morning uh, an article in a French newspaper which was explaining that it is difficult to get past all the, the regulation barriers. You have to treat it to such an extent that economically it just doesn't make sense at all. You, you may be green-minded, but still, if it doesn't make sense, you're just not going to do it. That's one of the elements of sustainable development. It has to be economical. If it's not, well, it's just not happening. Yeah, the, the approach in Israel is that we don't have a choice. So it doesn't make sense economically if you have other sources of water. But if you're in a negative water balance and you still want to grow food and, and to advance your economy and to export fruits and vegetables like Israel uh, is very good at, you need to get the water somewhere. Apparently, it does make sense eventually. It is correct that the stricter the uh, regulation, the more expensive it will be to treat and Therefore, you need to account for that also in the, in the different uses of, of that water. So it will eventually make sense. And here, well, maybe I should have said that before. I'm not speaking for the Israeli government or for anyone. I'm just speaking out my mind and my opinions and my experience here. And therefore, I'm also 
afraid to um, maybe to criticize or also to say what what is still what still needs to be done. And so it is correct that Israel leads the world, and by the way, by a huge margin in the percentage of effluent that is being reused. I think Israel is almost 90%. The closest one behind that, as far as I read, is maybe 30, 25 or 30%. However, when it comes to regulation and to quality, uh, we still have a way to go. And also, of course, with the technology that needs to be used in order to reach that quality. Two elements here. If you treat almost 90% that is reused, how do you treat it actually? What is the treatment chain? What is the policy that you add? And a second question, and then you can take both of them. How does it look in the industrial world? Is it like the same amount? Is it more? And are the treatments similar or do you see major differences? So first of all, uh, regarding the domestic wastewater, so the majority is treated by the conventional primary, secondary, activated sludge or similar biological uh, treatment. More and more, and I think we're close to the majority or almost uh, there, uh, is treated tertiary, so with uh, advanced filtration beyond the secondary and with chlorination or with disinfection. This is the basic treatment, which uh, if done properly, meets the Israeli regulation for irrigation, of course, The, it's not as simple because irrigation of different crops requires slightly different qualities. Therefore, tertiary uh, will only be used for uh, for irrigation of crops that require that, while non-edible crops, for example, can be irrigated with a slightly lower quality. The regulation gradually gets more strict, so more membranes are being uh, uh, used lately to get to, you know, high tertiary uh, quality in terms of solids, bacteria, and others. AOP and other uh, advanced treatment are still in discussions, let's say this way. Uh, it's still not regulated to that extent in when water goes to uh, irrigation. But again, it's almost unfair, if you like. It's not unfair, but it's almost irrelevant to compare this reuse to what happens in Orange County or in Singapore, where the water from the beginning is intended to go to potable or maybe to advanced industrial applications. Therefore, the treatment technologies must be different, naturally. We are back to this topic of, of common sense. Sometimes it's just good enough. Why would you treat the water up to drinking water levels if it's to irrigate some crops that would, by the way, benefit probably from a bit of organic matter and where you would have less additional chemicals to put on it to make the crop grow. So, yeah, we are back to common sense. I agree. When it comes to nutrients and, and, and fertilizers, you're absolutely correct. But we, we should not forget all those emerging chemicals and, and, and hormones and other things that are now starting to be in the center of, of attention. Definitely when it goes to potable, but... I think personally that they should be more also accounted for when it goes to irrigation of, of edible crops, because at the end we, we eat those again. And uh, so those materials probably should be also taken care of. It's another fascinating field, if you ask me, because when you look at this treatment of emerging contaminants, one of the way to treat them, which is, of course, almost impossible on full scale, but but which works quite nicely is, is the reed beds and to take basically nature to break them down. So you could imagine it doesn't work for all of them, but it works for some of them. If you have read those, some of them, then probably you don't need to remove them because the crops are going to do their job and be part of the solution. But, but yeah, that's a fully other. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're right. I, I just must comment that in some cases, in some places, some uh, solutions are more relevant than others. Uh, Israel, for example, uh, suffers also, some parts of Israel suffer from land or from footprint limitations. So, uh, for example, much of, of the wastewater today in, in central Israel is being treated by aquifer filtration. But those lands are limited. It's huge ponds where they trickle into the aquifer and then being pumped back and sent to irrigation at extremely high quality. But these days we need to start thinking about 
alternatives that are more compact because the population grows and the land is limited. So the reed beds and, and all the natural solutions are extremely efficient and very, very good, but they may take quite a lot of area that we need to make sure that we have. Talking of these spaces where there's a bit less place, usually that's the industrial world as well. And uh, what about reusing the industry? So industrial wastewater is, uh, is always around the world, I think, uh, a very delicate issue when it comes to wastewater. The, every industry has its own wastewater and very different from, from each other. A lot of the Israeli industries eventually discharge into the domestic sewer, which eventually goes to treatment and reuse by the domestic wastewater plants. And uh, it is very, very important to, to monitor and to regulate those in order to make sure that the eventual treatment plants are not being disrupted, but even more important that the eventual effluents that are being reused are free of contaminants that originally came from the industry, like heavy metals, like other things that are usually absent from domestic wastewater, but can be added by the, in, the industrial. Industrial wastewater is always and will always be probably one of the biggest challenges and, and also therefore one of the first adopters of water innovation and technology, both because they're easier maybe for adopting new technologies, but also because the needs there are higher and, and the regulation is sometimes stricter. Which gives me the opportunity to send to little highs to other Israel startups I had on that same microphone regarding what you said on, on the emerging contaminants and how we could be really targeted at, at taking really the, the most problematic ones out of water. We had that discussion with uh, Gabby Wilkinson and Ophir Menashe on that microphone from Biocastle because they are encapsulating some, some bacteria that might be then targeting exactly that, those compounds. And um, talking of the distributed size, even if Gilad Yogev from Fluence explained us that uh, they have solutions that go also on the central end of the market, there is for sure a, a special interest for their autonomous solutions One thing that Gilad Yogev, by the way, from Florence, where I spent uh, quite a lot of, of my own career, one of the things that also came out of the Israeli experience in a way, and also from the national water law that does not differentiate basically between big cities and isolated settlements and villages, all are under the same law. Everybody should get the same quality of water and also should answer to the same or almost the same regulation. And from there started a lot of this, what is now a very uh, uh, you know, common buzzword, which is decentralized or distributed water uh, treatment and wastewater treatment, because each and every village, settlement, army camp, whatever you want, should have and has practically its water supply, And if it comes from a well in, in the far desert, then it needs a containerized desalination unit. And then the wastewater also needs to be treated, preferably reused in the fields of, of that village or kibbutz or whatever. And so the, the heritage of decentralized water and wastewater treatment also has roots in the Israeli water management uh, heritage, I guess. And, and now that approach is, is also taken to the world. Well, about taking to the world and, uh, and thanks for that smooth transition, we have this reuse aspect where you, you, you explained us how Israel is leading the pack somehow, but it's probably a solution to much more places than just Israel and probably the same for distributed or decentralized treatments. More arid places I would start with. So uh, asking France or Switzerland or the UK to copy or, or even take too many ideas from the Israeli uh, water uh, management scheme is a little bit ambitious. But there are so many arid countries in the Middle East and beyond. It is impossible to copy solutions. But the ideas and the principles and, and uh, some of the technologies can and it should be adapted from one place to the other. And we should do the same here when we upgrade our reuse to higher standard or to more uh, you know, uh, emerging contaminants, we should and we must go to places that already deal with that for maybe portable or other applications. 
and adapt them to our irrigation needs, for example. We have to be careful when we say it's only for arid places because, you know, I had the discussion with Jacob Bossard from Bossac on that same microphone and he was sharing that there was a place in Flanders, so in Belgium, which is really comparable to sub-Saharan areas when it comes to, uh, to this aridity. So sometimes it's really in the middle of places which are water-rich that you still have this water scarcity element. Correct. So that's why I, I said, or what I wanted to say is not arid countries. Looking at this on, on, only on a country level is a little bit misleading. And even in Israel's solutions in the, in the north where it's wetter relative to the south might be uh, a little bit different. So somehow we are back to this topic of decentralized because you have the, the central planning, which has to give you a frame, but then it has to be local solutions. If you see that you are in, a, in an arid area, then reuse makes sense. And if you see, like, like me, I mean, from my window, I see the Rhine River, reusing my water would probably make little sense, whereas protecting the Rhine from nasty effluent makes a lot of sense. So, Well, man, many people might claim that you are reusing, but other people's water from upstream. <laughs> Yeah, very true. A bit less since that, since we, we built finally wastewater treatment plants a bit everywhere in Europe, but, uh, but, but very true. I mean, but, but if, they, if they discharge into a river, it will go somewhere. If those treatment plants distribute separately their effluents to irrigation or to industry directly, then correct, it will never go into the river and will never be reused by people drinking downstream. So it, this is again a bit of a, of a decision. Of course, I understand that in some countries, reusing for agriculture doesn't make much, much sense. But reusing for industry, for example, makes a lot of sense rather than using your limited freshwater resources to feed the same industry. By the way, this is one thing that I think Israel can still go beyond where it is today. So diversify the destinations of reuse from only agriculture, also into industry. I don't want to claim that maybe one day potable will also be included. But before that, there's so much fresh water that is being used by industries and that can be relatively easy and, and I think not with too much investment be replaced with, uh, with domestic effluents that can be reused. Yet, if I look at uh, actually the infographic you produced last year about this evolution of men, homo reuses, which is the, the last step, the one which is reusing its water, is, is the final evolution. No, it's not, actually. I think this is the almost final evolution. The final evolution, well, so since this is a podcast, we can go through, just remind the stages. I, it starts with just discharging the, the wastewater to the environment. It goes through treating it before discharging it. The next stage, and this is more environmental stage, before we get to using the water, is to treat it so it won't be such a horrible pollutant to oceans and, and rivers and everything. Only after we treat it, we can start reusing it, depending, as we said, level of treatment to be matched with a, with a reused destination and, and, and requirements and, uh, and, and other limitations. Once we've done all that, we are only using one part of the resource that is there in the wastewater, which is the water. It is 99 or 90-something percent of wastewater is water. But if we just reuse the water, we are still losing a lot of those resources that we may benefit from in the wastewater. And this is that's why I call the final evolu evolution step homo circularis, uh, which means that we reuse everything. Of course, not everything, but everything that makes sense and that we have the, the technology and the use for in the wastewater. And that obviously starts with energy and then also nutrients, precious metals, if it makes any sense or whatever we already have there. Rather than the old or the traditional concept of the water industry is that wastewater includes pollution and pollution must be eliminated so clean water can be taken from the other side to whatever we do. 
But if we change that paradigm and start looking at whatever in the wastewater, not just as a pollution that should be eliminated, but as resources that can be recovered, then the entire uh, concept of treatment also can or should be changed. Now, let me take my, my devil's advocate hat for a second. I'm fully with you as a, as a water professional to see that there's this, this water which was before untreated. Let's stop calling wastewater. Let's say it's a, it's a resource. We take out everything that could harm the environment. We reuse that water. We take all the particles out that can be reused somewhere else. Phosphorus there, cellulose there, uh, heavy metals there. I mean, lots of things like that. That really sounds like, you know, a water engineer's dream. So that's awesome. But if you consider that there are places in the world where, I mean, and not so many places in the world, it's, just, it's the vast majority of the places in the world where the wastewater is, is not treated at all today. Basically, you know, it feels a bit like if I go to my daughter and I tell her, you know, do this, 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 and I give her like a list of 20 things she should do, She's just not going to do anything just because she knows that she, she cannot do the 20. And if she does 18, I'm still going to tell her, you know, you didn't do the two other ones. So why bother start at all? So don't you think that at some point, if we optimize it too much, we are sending the wrong message. And the good message might be, well, do something and whatever you do, it's better than nothing. Yes. So I, I actually think the opposite. And I think there are a few examples for that. And I'll try to convince you. My basic uh, approach is that there's no need for everyone everywhere to go through each and every step of this evolutionary development like we did or like you did in Europe over the last two centuries. This is exactly where this so-called flat world can have a benefit. Uh, the fact that in Switzerland it took 200 years to switch from uh, raw wastewater in the river to complete uh, reuse for potable or somewhere else To me, it means that where now water is being dumped, raw in, uh, wastewater is being dumped to the river, can, at least technologically, implement tomorrow if the resources are there, if, if other things uh, are met. There's no need for them to go step by step through basic treatment and then later upgrade to secondary and tertiary and blah, 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 and, you know, and maybe expedite and have it in 150 years. No, the technology is there. The economics are already known, and there's no need to go through everything. And a good example for that is some countries that lacked almost every communication infrastructure. And then cellular communication came in and solved so many problems, and now cellular, uh, you know, 3G, uh, maybe even 5G soon, will be there without going through the telegraph and the telephone and the fax and, and, and everything, because it was there ready to be deployed and answered many questions. By the way, maybe, just maybe, if we have a valid economic basis for recovering resources out of wastewater, it might actually give the incentive for those places that today see no value in that water. They don't lack water because maybe they are tropical countries. And, the, and reusing, un, unlike arid countries, where the water is actually the resource that is limiting and, and it gives the incentive to, for reusing it, right? From Israel to California to Australia. But what happens in Central Africa? They don't need the water. They have excess water. But what about the other resources? Maybe uh, having a, a valid or solid uh, economic basis for extracting metals, for example, for the battery industry or nutrients for the fertilizing industry or just energy, clean energy out of the wastewater, they will keep dumping the water back to the, to the river and the ocean because they don't need it, but they will have the incentive for treating it from the other resources. Now, this sounds a little bit like too good to be true and like a dream, But uh, I think that once the, the technologies will be there, be proven and scaled up to economically get those resources out of the wastewater, it will create completely new markets. Somehow that brings us back to this central planning, because, you know, uh, in this French article that I alluded to earlier, there was a very 
revealing example. They were saying that all the reuse projects in France are on the West Coast, not because they need the water at all, but just because when they're discharging to the, the, the ocean, then they have algal bloom and they have a problem with uh, the, the fishes which disappear. They have a problem of balance with the ocean. So it's not about the water. It's about the macro picture around it's exactly what, you, what you're sharing. Last question. Do you think we are far from having the full array of technologies we need? What is the, the, the primary field we shall be looking at? I was under the impression that, you know, technologies like phosphorus recovery are already pretty advanced. Uh, is that true? Is um, I, I don't feel that yet. I think that when it comes to treating the water, cleaning the water, a lot of the technology is already there. It's already proven. There are already full-scale examples. That evolution, in terms of the technology, it's still not everywhere. But there are very good examples, even for portable reuse, right? You go to Orange County, California, it's a full-scale, enormous, and, one, and, and amazing, as, as a water uh, technologist's perspective, example of, of how large-scale portable reuse uh, scheme can work over many years and, and economically and efficiently. So that side, cleaning the water is quite advanced. There's always a lot of improvements and always new inventions and new innovation that can be applied. By the way, one part that is still at its very early stage is, is all those, some of those emerging contaminants like PFAS. How come we, we haven't mentioned PFAS yet in, in, in the last uh, 30 minutes? It's the hottest thing out there. The technologies to deal with that are just starting to emerge and scale up and obviously goes hand in hand with the regulation uh, in the US and in the Europe and other places that mandate treating that to very, very low levels, both in potable water, but also in effluents and leaches and other sources. But I feel that this part is quite advanced. The resources recovery part of things is still much earlier in its uh, development, maybe except for one aspect, which is biogas from sludge. But still, the sludge just represents a fraction of the chemical energy that came in as BOD or COD into the plant because we oxidize, we invest a lot of of energy in order to supply oxygen in most cases to break down that energy, that, uh, that organic load. So energy production, nutrient recovery, obviously everything we mentioned before, like uh, heavy metals and other things that today is, seems like a problem, a very big environmental and health problem. The battery industry sees that as Gold, practically, literally, sometimes. Uh, now, is it cost-effective to extract those from different streams? Not necessarily wastewater. Take all the brine that comes out of desalination plants. This is another type of wastewater that at the moment is just being discharged as is. As long as it is, meets the environmental regulation, it's perfect. But in fact, it also can or may include some uh, precious resources that we might want to recover if there is an economic uh, basis for that. Yeah, we, we're back to this, this bigger scene and you have to look at the bigger scene. Ravid, I propose you to switch to the rapid fire questions. It's time for the rapid fire questions. The problem is that usually the rapid fire questions are the questions which everybody gets, but you got them and you got the second set as well. So I had to create a third set for you. Your creativity is, uh, is never fails to, to amaze me. <laughs> <laughs> you see that the first question is actually very, very linked to uh, what we were just discussing. What is the top synergy we predict for wastewater treatment in the next decade, a.k.a. With what can, can it be coupled to increase the overall yield and why? Two buzzwords, renewable energy at the moment. This is not a consideration in most water management schemes or production anywhere, I think. The other thing, which we already discussed, is circular. Looking at 
water and wastewater as part of a broader uh, circular economy that involves not only water, but also other materials and, again, energy. I think that's where everything must go. What is the one thing we do today in the water industry that we will be looked at as totally nuts in 20 years? Bottles. I, I hope they would be, it would be true that in 20 years we'll look at that as, as ridiculous. I, I'm not that optimistic, but still, one is bottled water. The other thing, which we already covered, is the discharge of untreated wastewater to the environment. If you were a world political leader, what would be your top three actions to influence the fate of the world's water challenges? I would just take one, not three. But this one, but this one is, is huge. That's global reuse targets. Take the carbon emission reduction targets and the global treaties and, and agreements that there are with all the commitments of different companies and most of all states and countries for reduction in emission. If it would be up to me, there would be a similar global agreement and uh, quantifiable targets for each country, of course, based on its current situation, very similar to the, to the carbon situation. Not everyone can and should commit to the same level at the same rate, but everyone should, has, should have a target. How do you share sustainability caring with the next generation? I try as much as I can. I, I have a solar power system on my roof and uh, my kids are responsible for cleaning it uh, from dust uh, once a month during summer. So they share the, the effort for uh, producing uh, clean energy. We have a hydroponic system where we grow uh, vegetables and, and, and some things. And we watched uh, Brave Blue World on Netflix together, <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> it's always dangerous, you know, uh, you watch that and then you're, you're concerned a bit more, but still it's important to have this global vision. I mean, that's true for Brave Blue World, that's true for Seaspiracy, that's true for all the But it's good sometimes to get a kick in the ass like Michael Moore did for the Flint, Michigan story. So, yeah. <laughs> Revit, it's been a renewed pleasure to spend that, that time with you. Can we remind everyone of where they can follow you? LinkedIn. I skipped uh, the evolution of websites and, uh, and, and those kind of things. And I'm uh, trying to be active and present on LinkedIn. So I think that's the best way of reaching and, and communicating. And I'm, I'm always happy to do that with uh, everyone in, in the water market. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.